So I want you to turn your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at the first half, uh, the first paragraph of this chapter in 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Before we actually look at the passage, let me kind of set things up to get our mind moving in the direction of uh, what the themes and focus of Paul's writing here is at this point, and even bring that into connection to our day and our experience. I think uh, you are aware, as I am, uh, that talk about persecution in our culture, in American culture today, is increasingly common. And, you know, if you talk to, if you talk to Chinese, they would say, good for you, American church. This might be to your benefit. But it is true that there are ways that we as, as American Christians sometimes enter into the conversation about persecution that are not entirely helpful or healthy. I think there's especially two kinds of extremes. On, on the one hand, I have heard people talk about uh, persecution in, in such a way that they, they look at countries that face significant persecution, like bodily harm kind of persecution. And then they look at what we're experiencing in America, and they dismiss it as, well, I mean, that's not really what we read about in the New Testament, you know, with people facing physical harm, potentially. And so there's almost this dismissive uh, approach, like we really don't face any opposition to the gospel message in America today. But then the opposite extreme, I think, is also a challenge, and that's where we get, we get petty and thin-skinned and take every disagreement as an instance of persecution, as a kind of crying wolf. And this, I think, in all of these things, in all of these things, this is, uh, this is a conversation that we're going to need to get better at as believers living in America today. Today, I think there truly are risks increasingly for identifying as a Christian here Increasingly, our culture identifies things as virtue that the Bible identifies as sin. And when we agree with the Bible and call for all kinds of sinners to repentant faith, the consequences potentially, uh, relationally, uh, politically, economically, these things can start to give us pause, cause us to hesitate. We fear losing respect. We, We fear being viewed as radical. But we must remember that we ourselves are not alone in these challenges. Uh, We identify with the church abroad, and we identify with the church in its early stages of its life, even as Paul was addressing Timothy. So now we turn our attention to the last letter that Paul wrote, his last will and testimony, as it were. Uh, When Paul came to the end of his life, he, he really didn't have wealth, an inheritance to bequeath to his heir. But instead, Paul's will reads like this, as one man has written, To my dear son, Timothy, I leave all that I possess, my gospel and these chains. This letter, 2 Timothy, preserved by the Holy Spirit, stands, to me, it stands almost like the the Paul Memorial Chapel. It's like a a grand cathedral on the pages of the New Testament, commemorating 
the glory of the gospel as proclaimed, defended, and suffered for by the Apostle Paul. And as you read through this letter, the marks of suffering are all over its pages. In chapter 1, we read this command early on that's very central to all that Paul's doing in 2 Timothy. He tells Timothy not to be ashamed of the gospel because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And then he recalls, after giving that, that command, he, he recalls how many had actually departed from the faith. They had given in to fear. They had not followed this command to not be ashamed. And instead, and he, and he, and he, he, he recounts these men who have left. But then in the midst of that sadness, he reflects on how one co-worker in particular, Onesiphorus, remained faithful eagerly seeking Paul out in Rome. And what was Paul doing there in Rome? He was imprisoned. The marks of suffering are all over this book. We don't find Paul where we would expect a successful evangelical celebrity pastor to be at the end of his ministry. He is imprisoned at the end of his life. He's not in retirement, walking beaches or putting greens. He's deserted in prison, dealing with betrayal. So all of this context of suffering frames and sets our expectations, like Jesus set the expectations for his disciples when he said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so later in Second Timothy, Paul will say something very similar to Timothy about expecting to face persecution. So we come to our text in 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2 and verses 1 through 7. This morning we find Paul, I think, helping Timothy answer this question. How should Christians face the battles that arise when the gospel is opposed? How should Christians face the battles that arise when the gospel is opposed? In these seven verses, Paul gives Timothy four direct commands. Each of them function as a piece of the puzzle as to how we should respond or even how you should prepare for opposition. So we'll just walk through this passage to see how Paul equips Timothy to face opposition to the gospel. So let's read through this passage and then we'll just walk through each of these commands. Paul says, You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Can you see quickly, just scanning through the text, the four key commands in this passage? Do you see them there? You see, notice in verse 1, be strengthened, the first command. And then in verse 2, entrust to faithful men, the second command. Then in verse Three, share in suffering. And then in verse 4 and 5 and 6, he gives three analogies about the athlete, the soldier, and the farmer, right? 
And then the last command he gives in verse 7. Think. Think over what I say. So, how can we as believers prepare ourselves for opposition? How can we be better equipped, like Paul was equipping Timothy, to face opposition to the gospel? Uh, The first thing we see in verse 1, we need to consistently find our strength renewed in the grace of Jesus Christ. Find our strength renewed in the grace of Jesus Christ. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that the first command Paul gives is really a passive command. Be strengthened. So, it's a command to do something, for sure, but it's kind of passive. He must be strengthened. He is not the one to do the strengthening. The source of his strength is located specifically in the grace found in Jesus Christ. And so often, in our life's experience, we go the opposite direction. When we turn to strengthen ourselves, even to fulfill a evangelistic responsibility, where do we go for a source of strength? We focus on our own guilt. We go to a focus outside of the good news. It's strange that we're tempted to stir ourselves up to evangelize, to share the gospel message based on our feelings of guilt. But here Paul drives Timothy to the good news of grace. Yes, we we are guilty, and we must accept that to be strengthened in grace, but As it has often been said, for every one look at our sin, we need to take ten looks at the grace found in Jesus Christ. Paul begins driving Timothy in this direction. I think this this text, as simple as it is, this verse, contains a key reference to an element of the gospel message that sometimes we overlook. Uh, Many times when we think about God's grace, we emphasize Parts of it that we're more familiar with, perhaps, and then thereby underestimate and underconsider and insufficiently emphasize other elements. So when, when we hear Paul say, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, what grace do we think about first? I'm not saying it's wrong to think about this grace first, but, but often we think about this grace first and then only. And, and I, I'm at least inclined, personally, to think about the grace we find in justification. The, the, the positional truth, the reality that in Christ Jesus, the, the, the transfer of the righteousness of Christ to my account, this positional reality of justification is what I think about. When I, when I read this text first, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace, grace that is in Christ Jesus. That was the grace that I thought of first. We deserve the death penalty, but we've been acquitted and given a righteous verdict by Christ Jesus. No doubt this is part of the grace that, Jesus, uh, that, that Paul has in mind. And I'm not saying that in any way you shouldn't consider and reflect on that. And yet, still... I think it's interesting, the language of being strengthened in grace might actually move us to consider another aspect of the grace of God in our lives, like the old hymn, Rock of Ages, accounts for us. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let me be strengthened in my relationship with you. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. So now we're going to hear about two aspects of the grace of God through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. 
save from wrath, and make me pure. So there is a, a very much a, a positional truth there. Save from wrath. But then there's also an experiential truth there. Make me pure. In justification, we're saved from the penalty of sin. In regeneration, we are saved from the power of sin. And certainly these are connected as they issue forth from the the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yet here in our text, Paul calls for Timothy to be strengthened in the grace of Christ Jesus. And that strengthening language, I think, draws our attention not only to the power we have in a new standing, but the power we have over the slavery, the dictatorial power of sin, the reality that we are free from sin in Christ. Timothy, Paul says, refresh yourself in the strength and the freedom that you have from sin through the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but in my experience, this is truth that I need. When I, when I face other people's opposition to the gospel, when I, when I talk to high school friends as I come back to the U.S. who are skeptics religiously, when I talk to Chinese friends who really don't buy into Christianity and don't understand why I do, it's tempting for me to face these subtle and gnawing doubts that tempt me to say, you're not really personally living 100% consistently with all of this Christianity stuff either. These people, they're, they're not so bad. Do you, do you really think you know, these kinds of haunting questions tempting doubts as Timothy faced them, Paul tells him to be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus that grants you and all those who will come to Christ power over sin. You personally, experientially know that though you are not perfect, Timothy, you have a principle working in you that allows you to overcome temptation. Be strengthened in that grace. So the first command that Paul gives is this command to be strengthened. And so I think as we prepare ourselves to face opposition, where do we need to turn our attention? To the gospel, to the grace that is to be found in Christ Jesus. That is the source of our strength. Don't, don't look to political arguments. Uh, don't look to social apparatus for change. Look to the gospel. And then it's interesting what Paul does next in this command. He begins, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then we almost wouldn't think that the next command he gives is really parallel to that command. He says, what you have learned from me, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so I think actually for us, there is a a suggestion here in the context that as we face and prepare to be better equipped to face opposition, even persecution, one of the means we have at our disposal is to entrust the Christian message to another generation. How should we be making ourselves ready to face opposition? The second command Paul gives Timothy is, entrust the gospel message to another generation. Not necessarily just another generation, you know, like your kids, but another generation of Christians Paul continues here, having spoken first to Timothy's inner spiritual needs, he points now Timothy outwards toward ministry to other people. In his first command, 
directed toward others drives him to equip others to do the work. Clearly, the context for Timothy is focused on equipping others in the realm of pastoral training here, is what Paul has in mind. Preparing people to teach so Paul is reminding them, like he, he did in Ephesians 4, that their first responsibility as, as elders, pastors, Timothy, your first job is not to do all of the work of the ministry, but to equip people to do that work. So here the equipping body of teachers and elders is being directed, um, it, Paul, Paul is directing Timothy to pursue the next generation. So even as, as you think as a congregation about applying this command, there is a charge for all of you, whether you be an elder or a pastor or a teacher or not. The, the reality is there's many, many churches that have a kind of culture where the perspective is that the, the pastor is the one who does, he carries the load. He does the work of the ministry. And then basically you have a bunch of spectators who observe And clearly that is not what Paul envisions for Timothy here or for the pastor in other places in his writings. It's even a tempting thing for a pastor to fall into the trap of embracing more of the load than he ought to. So there's just an exhortation for you as a congregation to not allow that to happen. But there's more than that for all of us here, I think. Think about why Paul gives Timothy this exhortation at this point in this context. He exhorts him to have an eye out for the next generations of teachers who will teach. And as we probably have all heard before, there's actually four generations of teachers in view here in verse 2, right? You have, Timothy, you have Paul, who is then talking to Timothy about equipping other faithful men who then can teach other men, four generations, so to speak, of, of teachers. Now, put that in the context of opposition to the gospel, and just think about what Paul is doing here. Think about the kind of support and encouragement that comes to one generation when they see the next generation standing with them. You, you look around this room and think about generations of, of faith and belief in the gospel. I think about the generations of uh, an inheritance that I have received, a heritage that I have received in, in my family. And this is the kind of thing that Paul is, he is actually encouraging Timothy to seek encouragement himself as he, as he invests in another generation of, of men. It's like the instruction to fathers in Psalm 127 regarding the blessing of having a quiver full of arrows. That analogy a quiver full of arrows, it's strikingly militaristic if you think about it. I mean, what are arrows for? What do we use arrows for? We, we don't really use arrows to snuggle and cuddle on the couch, right? You know, when we use the Psalm 127, you know, kind of, when we think about it, we, we, we tend to go uh, in, a, in a different direction, perhaps, of what what the psalmist has in mind. Arrows are offensive weapons for battle to be hurled at targets, at enemies. And that's really what the psalmist is highlighting. A father is blessed with these arrows because he'll have reinforcements in the city gates when he faces opposition. 
Paul, no doubt, found great encouragement in the battle to have his son in the faith, Timothy, standing with him. And so he exhorts Timothy to continue the same process. So if you personally find yourself exasperated in American culture today by what's happening and by opposition you're seeing to the gospel message, the solution for you is not to get embroiled in political debate and post about it on Facebook. The solution for you is to pick up your Bible and contact someone in your church and start discipling them. Invest in the the next generation of believers. Start reading the Bible one-on-one with someone. Invest in, in your children, in equipping and preparing them to understand the gospel's message. So take that frustration and that energy as you face opposition in that direction of equipping another generation. So there's the the second command, the command to entrust faithful men who will be able to teach others. And obviously, as as a missionary who's specifically interested and focused on equipping men for pastoral ministry in China, this is a text that is one that I often come back to and reflect on. But it was, it was interesting for me to really start thinking about it in this persecution and opposition context and environment and see what Paul is doing here for Timothy. We move on to the third command. He says in verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So here there's a call for us to embrace our share in suffering, knowing our future reward. I add that that qualification, modification onto the end of it, knowing, knowing our future reward. Embrace your suffering, your share in suffering, knowing your future reward. And the reason I add that on there is because I think what we see in the passage, you have three metaphors or pictures that follow this command, share in suffering. And then he uses three analogies, like a soldier, like an athlete, like a farmer. And, and we don't have to even look carefully at the text to realize that all three of those individuals share in suffering. Soldiers don't have easy lives. Athletes, if they're going to compete well, they have to suffer in order to compete. And then the work of a farmer is hard. It's labor. It's back-breaking. And so Paul is challenging them to share in suffering, embrace their role in suffering. But he uses each of these analogies for a particular point. I don't think he's making three separate points with each of these analogies. Like we should think about the, the, the soldier and the athlete and the farmer in three different ways. Because notice what he does. He says, I think there's something in common between all three of these pictures. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civil, civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. There's reward language there talking about the soldier, right? And then look at the athlete. An athlete is not crowned reward unless he competes according to the rules. And then, verse 6, the the hardworking farmer, it's him who ought to have the first share of the crops. So, embrace your share in suffering, knowing your future reward. So here, Paul is calling for Timothy to share in suffering. It's interesting he uses this word share because it's, it's a term, and even as he gives this command, he's really, he has a plural idea involved. 
that is, there's a question here. Paul doesn't specifically tell us who he is to share in suffering with. But in the context, we would think it would include Paul, and it would go back to verse 2 and include those faithful men that he was equipping to teach other faithful men. So, so there's, a, there's a, actually a further call to camaraderie as he faces opposition, to be drawn together. And then the key feature of this section is what's unified between the analogy of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. As they call us to endure and be motivated through hardship, in the, but, but motivated by a future reward. So he starts with the soldier, and then he goes to the athlete, and then he goes to the farmer. Far too many of us as Christians gladly take blessings from God's hand, but we struggle to welcome pain. We, we love him in time of plenty, but then we grumble in times of rain. And the thing, the single thing, that will keep us from this kind of fair weather or health and wealth type of chintzy Christianity is the motivation of a soldier, as Paul lays out for us here. And the motivation he gives is to give honor, to bring glory to our commanding officer, Jesus Christ. As, as Americans traveling between China and America, we have to exchange currency as we go from one place to another, or as we transfer funds from one bank account in America to our bank account in China. We have to exchange funds. And here, Paul is actually challenging Timothy to exchange the currency of this world for the currency of the kingdom. And at that, I think he's challenging Timothy to actually set aside the receipt of that payment for a future exchange. Paul is is saying to Timothy, get hardship now. Endure them. Give up this world's valued commodities and securities in order to obtain eternal ones. Bank and kingdom values. So, as Paul equips Timothy... To face opposition. First, he gives this command to be strengthened in the grace in Jesus Christ. Then, to entrust the, the gospel message to future generations. Then, to share in, to share in suffering in light of and for the sake of future reward. And then, last of all, he gives this interesting command take the time to think seriously about your task. Notice what he says in verse 7 think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It almost doesn't sound serious enough in the context. It almost sounds too light. I don't think this passage is, this verse is particularly easy to translate the tone. But imagine the context. This is, this is part of Paul's last will and testimony to Timothy. And so when he says the, this word, think, you, know, you, you can get this kind of like, a, like what we read in the Proverbs where the father says to the son, Heed my words. He is pleading with him to reflect, to to meditate on these things. Consider what I say. And then and then this the Lord will give you understanding in everything, I think is really more of a prayer than a statement. It's a it's a, a deep desire of Paul's heart that Timothy will have the discernment then when he faces opposition to respond with wisdom and insight. My dear child, listen to these things. 
And I love what Paul does next, and we're just going to close reflecting on what he does next. We're not going to work our way through the next paragraph, but Paul actually gives another command in verse 8. Notice what the command in verse 8 is. He says, think on these things. And then what are the next words out of his mouth? Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. What a fitting way for Paul's equipping and instructing Timothy on how to be equipped and prepared to face opposition, how he he draws him back to the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the, the work that he did in his resurrection from the dead as preached in my gospel, for which I'm suffering, the word of God about this reality is not bound by these chains and by the opposition that we might face. So as Paul gives him this command in verse 7, think on these things, then he drives him more specifically to what those things ought to be, that he sets his attention and his focus on. I trust, I trust that as you have the opportunity to, to go through the privilege of facing opposition for the gospel's sake. That rather than turning to maybe a first response we might have, uh, that you'll, you'll turn your attention to a letter like Second Timothy to, to receive the equipping work of the Apostle Paul as he prepared Timothy to face opposition. That, that our spirits would find their strength in the grace that's in Christ Jesus that we will turn our attention to minister to other generations, to equip them, to entrust the gospel message to them, and that we ourselves will not shirk from embracing the load that we should carry in suffering for the sake of the gospel because we have a hope of a future reward and that we will soberly and seriously set our minds on these things, remembering Christ Jesus.